1: And his name is Lazarus, which is really short for Eliezer, which really means God helps or helped of God. That's kind of the name. And when I think of that, I see how that in Lazarus' life, God was already there doing things on behalf of Lazarus to help him. But then it says, "...Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha." I don't have time to go through a long geographical study here, but it is important because you need to know that there are more than one Bethany. If you do recall, you're going to find that where Jesus was at this time in the story, you're going to find him in a place where John the Baptist was baptizing, which was on the other side of the Jordan, another Bethany area over there. This is a Bethany that happens to be only two miles from Jerusalem. Now, that's important because there's a timing factor from the time that Jesus is now hearing in front of all the others that Lazarus is sick. Now, Jesus already knew that, but I'm saying he's hearing this in front of all these others that Lazarus is sick. It took him four days from the time that this all event, when he got back to where Lazarus was. Now, I'll explain that in just a moment. But to do that, there was a distance that was involved in this. The other is that when he had to move back into... Bethany, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are, that's very close to Jerusalem. And that's why there was a little bit of a, of a kind of a red light that went on the disciples because he already left Jerusalem because the Jews were out there to throw rocks at him. Remember, we studied that in the last couple of weeks. And so now he's wait, you've got to go back to that same place of oppression and challenge, and we'll see what the Lord says about that as well. So you need to know that that's where this Bethany is. The other, it says, a village of Mary and her sister Martha. This is the same Mary and Martha, as you'll see in verse 2, that uh, where Mary anointed the Lord's feet with oil and wiped her uh, feet with her hair, etc. And so that's that story. Now, for a moment here, some of you are getting into this and you're saying, man, there's Marys all over the Bible. Which Mary is this Mary? Well, it already says it's the Mary, the, the sister of Martha, but you have Mary, who's the mother of Jesus. That's not this Mary. You have Mary Magdalene. That's not this Mary. This is just Mary. The sister of Martha. Now, it's interesting as I went into this, it says, and Mary did all of this, and it says, whose brother was Lazarus, sick, etc. This story that is explained right here in verse 2 is amplified in chapter 12. The disciples already were aware of this because of what was explained. In the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that story is already out there. He's going to open it up a little bit later. So he's referring to an event to identify who this Mary and Martha is for us, who are now now picturing up what the chronology is in this whole situation. And the last is this. It says here, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So now what you have is you have two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I think of some families maybe in our own church. We have one brother and two sisters. And just to make it more real, how would it be, sisters, if your brother died? And yet you knew Jesus was around and maybe could have healed him to keep him from dying, let alone rise him again from the dead. So again, this is the pathos. This is a real event. These are sisters who dearly loved Lazarus and knew that Jesus loved Lazarus, his friend. And now he's sick. So go to verse 3. So Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord... Behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, if you want to, you can draw a line from verse 3 to verse 5 because you're going to see another time. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So I wanted you to know that there is this motivation of the Lord to receive the glory, but it's also combined with his opportunity to demonstrate in a very real way his love for three people, particularly Lazarus, because Lazarus is the one who is so sick. Now, some of you might be asking the question, does God cause illness? And as I went through Scripture, we already talked about this when he healed the blind man. I urge you to get that CD. But for just a brief moment here, let me give you two quick answers to that. Rarely does the Lord cause illness due to sin. I say rarely because we can give examples from Scripture where there were people that because of their sin, as a direct result of their sin... The Lord sent illness. I'm thinking of some Old Testament examples when they disobeyed God and God gave them leprosy, Miriam being one, and there's a whole list of others. So there is a rare time that, as a direct result of that sin, God unleashes that illness. And all of those, it's not so much to be punitive so that He spanks them as much as whatever attention that He's getting is to bring them back to Himself. And this is a wake up call to them. But more importantly, God does this because we live in a very sin-sick world. And because sin is everywhere in this world, we're all going to be touched by it and we're going to get sick by it because sin really deteriorates mankind. So a lot of the sickness that we have is just a result of sin in people they have a sinful nature, they make wrong choices, the wrong choices bring about this disease into their life, and it's really more about sin. And so yeah, I might have started with the Lord, but a lot of it is still our own sickness there. And the good news is, sometimes it's not just about this sickness, just again for punitive reasons, but to bring glory to the Lord and us eventually back to him. So there is some real reasons for it, and you might want to think about it, because it does go back to the glory of God. In chapter 9, verse 3, again, even that Eyesight problem where the man was born born blind was, again, so that the Lord could work. And later on it talks about him getting all of the glory. Well, now, as I look at this, let's go a little bit further. Verse 4 says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, remember, they sent word to him. So Mary and Martha have a sick brother. This guy now leaves to go where Jesus is. I think it took about a day to get there. I also think that he might have, the, the messenger might have left when Lazarus was sick But he died very soon afterwards. And you'll see what I say about that in just a moment. So it was about a day when Jesus heard this. Now, when Jesus heard it, it wasn't like, oh, I didn't know he died. Jesus already knew that. He's omniscient. We'll see that in a moment. But he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, you may want to mark that again. Whatever that sickness is... It's going to bring glory to the Lord. So some way, the Lord is going to get glory through this particular event. I don't know how, but he's going to get it. Now, sometimes it's going to be through the healing. Sometimes it'll be, in this case, the only time, rising from the dead. Sometimes it won't. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dennis and I received word from a friend who pastors in Atlanta, Georgia. And he said to us, can you go by and visit a family? They've been here on the island. This church has sent workers over here to help and do a lot of nice stuff for us and said, could you go see this family? Husband and wife are heading back home, and on their way to the airport, the husband had a massive seizure of some kind in the van. They pull over to the side of the road, and they were able to get him a defibrillator right there at the airport, so they brought him somewhat back to life again. Now he's in the hospital hooked up to all of these tubes, and there's some problem with his brain, and we don't know. Can you go visit the family? Dennis and I both went and talked to them separately, prayed with them, talked to the wife. The wife was pretty much just accepting the fact that he would not live. When I arrived... His heart was now strong and pumping and doing everything that it could do, but his brainwave was down to very minimal brainwave. And the doctor said, it would be wise for you to either remove him now or send him back home and then remove the instruments back then. So we began to talk about how in the world can God get glory through this. And we can, in our own way, shift into God can get glory and come up with some practical ways. But even then, the very best way that God can get glory is ultimately still mysteriously up to him, not to us. We just move ahead. And we just received word on Monday that he did arrive home in a special air ambulance. They brought the family around. His wave that was minimal ceased to exist completely. And now this person, his name is Chris, is in heaven with Jesus Christ. Now, he never got well from his sickness. He never was raised from the dead. But I believe with all of my heart that God will get the glory as long as I don't put how God gets the glory into my box. I allow God to open up that box so that he would get the glory any way he chooses. It is us, though to try to manifest the greatness of God, even in a loss. Not to minimize it, not to blow it off, not to act like it doesn't happen, or to deny it, but to use it in a way that will bring glory to him. So, when we see these things, what are some observations we can make? What should we own about this? Here's just two simple ones. A delay does not compromise God's love. Some of you might be waiting right now for God to work, and you've been waiting a long time, whether it's business, finances, your own health, relationships, whatever it might be, you are waiting for God to work. And I want you to know that in those situations, God's delay does not compromise his love for you. I like this phrase, that God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. So again, some of that delay is still going to be for our benefit. Which brings me to number two, God's sovereign timing is perfect even if we sometimes think he's too late or it really doesn't make a difference. We need to know that God's way is perfect because he is still sovereignly in control of everything we cannot control. Watch this. I think we know theologically that, but now here we've got to take it to the next level. That he is in control of everything we cannot control. That he is, he is the, he's large and in charge, and watch this, and he has the right to be. See, a lot of us know it, but we don't want him to have that right. Somehow we want to manipulate, massage, intimidate, whatever we want to do to get God now to work for us in his sovereignty. In the sense of saying, Lord, I just rest in you and you, the sovereign one, do whatever you want, and I will respond as best as I can through scripture, relying upon your spirit to help me to respond in these ways. I look at how long it took for Jesus to get there. Now, if you'll see a little bit further, go to verse 5. It says, now Jesus loved them. But verse 6 says, so when he heard that, that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So you're going to hear it was the four days that Lazarus was in, you know, the tomb. So one day for the messenger to get there. Most of us, uh, sometimes we hear of a crisis, we jump right away, don't we? Phone call, email, visit, whatever it might be. Jesus not only didn't do that, he didn't even leave, he didn't run, he didn't grab a donkey, he stayed around for two more days. And if you go a little bit further, which we will in a moment, from verse 7, almost to verse 17, you're going to find that he stayed there two days, although there's only a few verses of a discussion of what he had with his disciples. I really believe that Jesus Christ was sitting on these days because he needed those days for these people to be able to really understand the significance of what is about to happen in just a few days this is huge i think one of the first things it was is that this is going to strengthen the sister's faith now remember these sisters were hoping that he would be healed they had no idea that jesus would then raise him from the dead they knew Jesus was strong enough to heal him because they've seen it in the past, but he's never raised anybody from the dead. So by him being gone, this allowed Lazarus the time to die, and the sisters to watch him stay dead for one day for the messenger, two days for Jesus delaying, and another day for Jesus to get back there. So again, these sisters' faith would be now greatly strengthened because he didn't do a, what we might call a minor miracle, although healing anybody is a major one, especially if it's on you or me, alright? But the point being is it was a big one because he raised him from the dead. The second thing I think that's important about is perfect timing here. It was to make sure that Lazarus was dead. In the Jewish way of looking at Scripture, they interpret it in their way of doing it. They believe when their Jewish person dies that the soul lingers for about three days, hovers over the body. And then if it's the fourth day, that's when the body really dies, the person, excuse me, the person really dies because the soul and the spirit then completely separate, the body is now decaying, no chance for the soul to come back into the body and, you know, come back to life again. Now when you hear that, some of you new people are going to say, really, is that really what happens in soul sleep and all that? All that I just shared with you is not found in scripture. It is something that would be in their tradition, what they would teach, but that idea is not found in scripture. But Jesus, knowing that that's how they would think, wanted to prove even more that I'm not going to buy into you thinking then that I did this because it happened so quickly and the soul never really left. It was hovering there. So he allowed it to happen where he was dead, 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 dead. Now, that in a way is very true because they would, as soon as a person died, the Jews didn't believe in embalming like the uh, Egyptians would do. So they ended up just burying the body. When I was a. uh, when I was a senior in high school, I had a friend, a Jewish friend. First name was Mitchell. That's all you need to know. I came in and, in the, the classroom at 7 in the morning, and all the kids were kind of hubba-hubba-hubba talking to one another and didn't know what it was about. And I finally said, what is going on? Everybody's kind of whispering. They said, did you know the guy who sat next to you, Mitch, he committed suicide in his backyard. He hung himself on Saturday, and his dad drove in from shopping with the mom in the car and saw the, the, the son hanging. And so the, the father then took... The, the knife and cut down the sun when the rescue squad came and started lashing out at the rescue personnel as well, the first responders. And, and then uh, it was a tragic thing. I, I don't know what kind of a reputation I had. I, I will tell you, before the Lord, I had a very bad one. My reputation, I was a Secret Service Christian in the sense. No, I didn't smoke pot. I didn't run around with you know, girls and stuff like that. And, but I wasn't a sold-out-for-Christ for Christian. I, they kind of knew I was a Christian. I was horrified because Mitch sat next to me in my junior year and halfway through my senior year, and I would come back on Monday and tell him about all the surfing I would do on the weekend, but I would never tell him about the Bible study I went to or the church service on Sunday night or what I'm reading in Scripture. I never once gave Mitch the gospel. Now, he was Jewish. Well, the family then said, why don't you go and bring maybe um, something to the family? What what can the school do? Now, remember, this is in the 60s, all right? And I said, I'd like to bring him a Bible. So I got the family a Pentateuch which would be the first five books of the Bible. And then on the cover, inside the flyleaf, I then wrote out Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned ourselves to our own way. But the Lord would lay upon himself the iniquity of us all, the death and resurrection of Christ. So then I got that Bible on Friday and I went up to the house. And that nice Bible all wrapped up from the school, I knocked on the door. I've never experienced this before. I'm just kind of my, my first, what I might call my first pastoral call. And so as I did, the door opens up. The family, Jewish, are all seated on the ground or on stools or hassocks, they would call them. They have not shaved, showered, cleaned anything in the house nor themselves since Saturday when the boy died. And then they buried this, the boy on Saturdays and they just mourned. The mother ran to the door and she said, You're from the school. Tell me about Mitch. Did everybody like him? Was he Did he have a lot of friends? Tell me about him. Why did he do this thing? I wish I could have given her an answer. I kind of mumble something out. I hardly remember what it is right now. I wish I could have said, Your boy was a dear friend And as a dear friend, he listened to me as I explained the way of salvation, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he placed his faith alone in him, and he's in heaven right now. I didn't do that. So that was my first experience at what goes on in what we might call a little bit more orthodox Jewish home. But that's pretty much what was going on here. And so Jesus is now having this conversation. So I want you to know that sometimes in your life, you're going to go through a particular issue or crisis, something that you sense is a real need, And obviously, we live in life in the fast lane. We want the Lord to answer it right now. And often what he wants to do is he says, no, I need to have you stretch your faith just a little bit more. I need you to just hang in there to watch me operate. Because, again, it's not so much about me responding to your little wish and rubbing the genie bottle. It's all about me getting the glory. And to do this, I've got to get the glory. Watch this. My way, not necessarily your way. Now, this is hard for many Christians to understand because they hear a lot of pop psychology, three points in a poem messages, and a lot of uh, extreme services. But to hear the fact that he is in control, he is the one that has the right to be in control, and all we are is nothing more than servant slaves of children of him, and he can do it. And by the way, when we watch it, when we have that attitude and we live that out, that's when we really experience the fullness of God. That gives us the impetus to deal with sin when we know that He's watching everything that we do. Now I'm speaking to Christians now specifically on that. So if you're waiting on God to work in your life, and I don't know who you are, maybe you are, maybe you've come to the point, I've got to wait, I can't do anything else, I can't heal this guy, I can't get this job, I can't get this relationship going, I can't whatever, I've got to wait on God. Then let me give you three things to think about they're in your notes. Number one, make sure it's God you're waiting for. And that you're not using him to get what you want. Maybe the reason you're not getting what you want is because the Lord says, nope, you're never going to get that. I don't want you to have that. That's bad for you. And yet we do everything we can. So we decide, well, I'll just serve the Lord more. We put ourselves on all these legalistic trips to get something more out of God. When he says, no, even what you want, you shouldn't have. I want to caution you and caution me that in Scripture, even the children of Israel wanted stuff the Lord didn't want them to have. And eventually the Lord says, I'll give it to you. And he gave them plenty of food, meat specifically, but he sent leanness to their soul. So maybe eventually you might, quote, arm twist God. And I would only say you can only arm twist him of what he permits. And then he gives it to you and you will live the rest of your business, your career, your marriage, your family, whatever you're in, in a state of leanness. And I think if the truth be told, this is Ponzism here, all of us have areas of leanness where that we did push God into giving us something that we should not have had or we should not have had when we wanted to have it. And so we've kind of risen above it because of God's grace and mercy and righteousness to us, His love. But at the same time, we know there's a little leanness in this area in our life. Also, make sure it's God that you're waiting for. There are others that um, they're waiting on God to do what God wants them to do. Let me explain that way. Sometimes we say, I'll witness when I finally feel God leading me to witness. Well, we don't have to be led to witness. God tells us to. You know, when you you are thinking about being baptized, it's not waiting for God to ask you to be baptized or to lead you to be baptized. As a believer in Christ, you're commanded to do that. So it's not waiting on God. What you might wait on God is, what's the date on the calendar? Where are we going to meet? I need to clear my calendar so it's going to take time between right now hearing the pastor and getting immersed There is some of that, but nothing that you're doing is slowing that process down because you're going to move forward. So you see that sometimes people use waiting on God as an excuse not to do what God wants them to do. And you'll see again that concept as it's opened up because God will do things only God can do, but then he tells us to do the things that we can do. So make sure waiting on God is from his perspective. The second is pray for God's glory. And when you're doing this, You know, sometimes we we, we talk about this, but we might need to really center our lives down, get out the clutter, quit all the running around for a while, you know, all the involvement of all wonderful things that keep us away from the most spiritually great things to slow our life down so that we could really think, Lord, I need you to help me. Show me what I can do to bring you more glory while I'm waiting. while While I'm waiting. Mark that. While I'm waiting. Not necessarily when you get the answer. And then finally while you're waiting for God to work, trust God's timing. You know the old phrase, it's such a cliche, God is never early, but He's also never late. So trust God's timing, and I, I like to look at it this way, it's not about Him early or late, it's because God is all-knowing, He is so wise, and I would rather be on His clock, I would rather be in his, on His eye cal and not on mine, and you know what I'm trying to say, it's all about Him. I want to read uh, something I picked up years and years ago that I have used many times when I've done single uh, seminars, when I was teaching a lot of single seminars for, for singles and singles again. When I read this, most of you singles probably will somehow resonate with this. Those of you who are married might just blow it off. But as I read this to you, even if you're married right now, I want you to read it not so much about waiting for a mate that you might have or you might look at it as maybe we want to have children but we can't have children. Some of you might, it might be something else, a career or something you want, a house of your own or I don't know what it is but in your mind just think, is there something you want so desperately? And I call this little thing I'm going to read to you satisfied with Jesus. In a sense it's the Lord speaking to all of us who want something right now that he doesn't want us to have right now. I'm going to make this perfectly clear. This is not coming from scripture. It's man written. But I think the concept and the attitude and the theme is biblical. So... Listen to it now as I read to you, all right? Especially you singles, because I love you so much. And let me tell you, it is better to be single than wish you were sometime, all right? Now, I'm not, not speaking from, oh boy, I'm not speaking from history here, but speaking from the fact that embrace your singleness at the right time. And here's what it says. Everyone longs to give themselves completely to someone, to have a deep soul relationship with another, to be loved thoroughly and exclusively. But God says to the Christian, No, not until you're satisfied, fulfilled, and content with being loved by me, with giving yourself totally and unreserved to me, to having an intensely personal and unique relationship with me alone, discovering that only in me is your satisfaction to be found. Will you ever be capable of the perfect human relationship that I have planned for you? You will never be united with another until you are united with me. Exclusive of anyone or anything else. Exclusive of any other desire or longing. I want you to stop planning. Stop wishing. And allow me to give it to you. The most thrilling plan existing. One that you cannot imagine. I want you to have the best. Please allow me to bring it to you. You just keep watching me. Expecting the greatest things. Keep listening. Keep learning the things I tell you. You just wait. That's all you do. Don't be anxious, don't worry, and don't look around at others and the things they've gotten or that I've already given them. Don't look at the things you think you want. You just keep looking off in a way up to me. Or you'll miss what I want to show you. And when you're ready, I'll surprise you with a love far more wonderful than you could ever imagine. You see, until you are ready and until the one I have for you is ready... And by the way, I'm working even this moment to have you both ready at the same time. Until you are both satisfied exclusively with me and the life I prepared for you, you won't be able to experience the love that exemplifies your relationship with me and to enjoy materially and concretely the everlasting union of beauty, perfection, and love that I offer you. Now, believe it and be satisfied. So while we might speak to those that are single, there's a message in there for every single one of us waiting on the Lord, allowing Him to take the time to build within us all that we need so that He would receive all the glory through the process of us waiting but also through the process of Him granting in his time, in his way. Well, the passage doesn't end there. That's what starts by saying that Jesus waited, but then Jesus went. So let's pick it up in verse 7 here, if you will, so you can follow along with me in how he did go. Verse 7 says this, Then after this he said to his disciples... Let us go to Judea again. Remember, there's a problem in Judea. Lazarus is supposedly sick. He knows he's already dead, so he's not going there. When I read that, let us go, and he's saying that to the disciples to solve this problem for him. You knew what I thought about? I thought about uh, Todd Beamer, who said, let's roll. So maybe this is your Bible. You could write at the top of it. Let's roll. Let's go, guys.